Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior, and thank you so much for lending me your ears and the only non-renewable resource that you've got. That, of course, is your time. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, I know that you could be engaging in any activity you choose. The way that you choose to learn is important. It's important to us, and it's an important way that you invest your time and resources. I promise that you'll get a return today, so I wanted to thank you for tuning into Suncast. And if you're new here, I hope that you'll share with us whether or not you get value out of this episode. I hope that you'll tune in all the way to the end. You're not going to want to miss today's episode. Today's entrepreneur, indeed intrapreneur, is someone I've come to admire and respect in the industry. Mr. Hugh McDermott is the Senior Vice President of Business Development and Sales for ESS Inc., public traded battery storage company that is changing the way we think about long duration storage. Hugh has a fantastic, a really intriguing and phenomenal career. The guy was developing flywheel projects and trading on the energy markets in the 90s and was part of projects that maybe you've heard of in the electric vehicle sector back in the aughts. Hugh has been on the cutting edge, say the bleeding edge of technology his entire career. And he is one of the true champions in the market, bringing the rest of the solar and energy sector into the reality that batteries help provide the 100% renewables, firm power reality that we all know is needed in this energy transition. If you like these kinds of topics, if you like hearing from front of the lines, energy sector leaders like Hugh McDermott, then you're in the right place. I hope that you'll subscribe to the show as that'll ensure that you won't miss out on our twice weekly content just like this. Of course, you can always check out more than 550 additional founder stories and clean energy startup advice over at mysuncast.com. For now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Well, we're going to kick the new year off right. I am so excited for this conversation. Solar Warriors want to say happy new year to everyone as we get into the first full-length interview of 2023. Here we go. Hugh, it is a long time coming. I'm really grateful to have a chance to get some time to sit down with you. You're a busy executive of a public company and uh, you have a lot on your plate. Today, we're going to explore sort of how you arrived at ESS. We'll talk more about that company, but you've got such a fascinating background. So I just want to start out and say thank you for taking the time and joining us on Suncast. No, it's super. I've been looking forward to it after our first conversation. So thanks for uh, bearing with me. No worries. Out the gate, Hugh, I'd love to set the stage for folks so they can understand both the premise and the promise of the business you're in and the career that you've created for yourself. How would you describe the problem that ESS was created to solve, as though you're speaking to my 11-year-old future engineer son. Sure. Well, I think everybody could understand that if we're trying to create a world that lives off of renewable energy, 
when the sun goes down, you don't have solar energy, obviously. And when the wind doesn't blow, you don't have the wind energy. And we can't keep building dams anymore, particularly when we have climate change and drought conditions. So uh, how do you solve that problem? The basic solution approach to it is you have energy storage. And there's a whole different range and spectrum of what constitute energy storage. The problem we specifically have set out to to solve is that when you just have low amounts of renewable energy on the grid, you can get by with what we call short-duration batteries. Uh, Lead-acid batteries were the battery of choice for decades for off-grid solar applications, remote communities, and and what have you. Um, Those are no longer really practical or cost-effective, and they're certainly not good for the environment. And as you get more renewable onto the grid, you find you need longer and longer duration to get you through to basically be able to manage the grid and keep it stable. And so what we are specifically uh, solving is energy storage, but of a longer duration to enable high amounts of renewable on the grid without compromising on the grid's reliability so that you can go through the entire night with 10 or 12 hours of energy when the sun's not shining. You know, that 10 or 12 hours of energy is the kind of storage that we build. Yeah, I'm in North Carolina, and uh, I think it made at least regional, maybe national news that some yokels shot up a transmission station here in North Carolina, and like 40,000 residents had three, four days of no electricity. It's the kind of thing that really, if we had appropriate distribution at a, at a local grid scale level, we would be able to provide backup resources for can you give a sense of scale, though, for folks who maybe are unfamiliar? You know, a lot of folks think of storage and batteries range from the little button battery in my remote control to really huge batteries. We, you know, could go all the way back to to the beacon power and flywheel days if we want. But just give a sense of scale in terms of of megawatt hours. And we'll, we can unpack a little bit of that in a bit. But just so folks can understand the difference between what we call short duration and long duration. Sure. Well, uh, if you if you think about uh, if I just take it kind of by, by technology type, most of the world is intimately familiar with lithium ion batteries by now. We've mm-hmm. all known all of us growing up. We knew our lead acid batteries, the batteries you have in your car, lithium ion batteries that power all of your power electronics, EVs in particular. Now those have gotten to such a scale of production that they got the cost down in, in such a way that you could actually start cost effectively deploying them for utility applications, very, very large projects. Um, Tens of megawatts, even hundreds of megawatts are now being talked about. They have their own drawbacks. And inherently in a lithium ion battery, the two or three most uh, glaring drawbacks is that uh, they have a very limited life. So you get so many cycles out of them and they they degrade. So everyone knows the experience. We cited often about how you buy that new cell phone, iPhone, and the first year you're getting a full day of service out of it. But by the second year, you got to plug it in in the afternoon to get through the day. They just degrade. Um, second is that they have a limitation in terms of you overheat them. If you've ever left that iPhone on the in, in your car, a hot car, and you come back and it will not work. In more severe circumstances, those things actually catch fire. We saw all those kinds of issues. So they've got some some drawbacks. And third, with regard to the duration part, is that they're inherently, the chemistry is such that it's between a two and four hours is about the, the, the length of discharge you can get out of a battery cell using that chemistry today. And so that's been good for the last decade or so in terms of what the grid needed to balance and stay stable with mm-hmm. 
renewable coming onto the grid. But as we've seen in California and now the rest of the world is starting to appreciate that when you get to about 20% of your energy or 25% of your energy consistently is coming from renewables, two to four hour duration batteries are no longer sufficient because you have this phenomenon, and I don't want to get too technical here, it's it's actually, it's actually a little easier to do in a visual, but they have this uh, thing that I encourage your listeners to go and Google, but called the, the, the duck curve. It's famous in the utility industry. Uh, we refer to it now as the Nessie curve because it looks more like the Loch Ness Minster than a than a, uh, a duck. But the phenomenon, basically, if I can paint the picture here verbally here, is that in the afternoons in particular, because of all the amount of solar that's now being generated, it suppresses the need for other generation very low on the mm-hmm. grid. And then in the evening, as the sun goes down, and that's at the coincides with the time when the loads are starting to get to the, be the highest in the day. All your ACs are cranked up. It's the hottest part of the day. People are coming home, turning on stoves, ovens, turning on their widescreen TV, and so forth. It's putting the, the maximum amount of stress on the grid. And that duration of that stress period, if you will, has gone from what was previously maybe a 30 to one hour interval eight, nine years ago to now five to six hours is a common interval. And the, the projection is that if we get to 40, 50% renewables, you're now looking at seven, eight hours. And so we're basically trying to solve for how to help countries, grid operators, states be able to achieve their 100% decarbonization goals by allowing uh, enough energy storage to keep the grid stable through the night. And long duration grid storage for reliability. And as you said, through the night storage of the renewable energy generated at peak hours. How many different ways are there to to quantify it or qualify it, right? So we mentioned that it's, you mentioned a, a bit ago, two and four hours in length of discharge. For the layman, kind of give us some of the terminology that's required. I think I could probably divide it in kind of three categories. There's sort of the four hours and less, which has been historically all the storage globally to date, 95, 98% has been in that category. And that's been about the same percentage of that's been lithium ion dominated because they kind of got the formula right and get the cost numbers right. And, and that's what the technology inherently can do. So there's four hours and less. And then there's four hours to, I'll say, 24 hours. That's kind of the spot that we kind of play in. And then there's kind of the ultra long duration, many days or weeks of duration. So there's technology buckets that, that technologies that fit in each of those three buckets. The first one is predominant lithium ion. In the middle one, there's a handful of technologies. Most are still in developmental stage. And then there's a few that uh, periodically get attention that are in that very, very long, ultra long category, which can, you know, they, they take days or weeks to charge, but they can also hold days or weeks of energy. Famously, pumped hydro is one of the better. Pumped hydro examples. being one and some other uh, exotic technologies that are still kind of in the lab these days. And and so we play in that middle bucket. We're the Goldilocks mm-hmm. seat, if you will. Yeah. And I guess what I was asking is we refer to them as a lot of folks would, would recognize on their, their nickel cadmium uh, battery or their lithium ion battery, AAA, the, you know, 800 milliamp hours. At grid scale, we refer to it as megawatt hours. Can you unpack a bit, like just help understand why that's relevant for folks to, to get their head around? Because folks that are developing or folks who want to get into the game, they, they need to understand the core concept of how the megawatt hours for batteries relate to kilowatt hours for projects. Well, maybe, uh, or maybe give a, you know, how do I 
kind of make it uh, relatable uh, mm-hmm. is, is, and I, I could be off on these numbers and we can check them offline and do a re, re, recheck for a recut on this, but I, I'd say a megawatt slash megawatt hour is, is probably the, I want to say the number is somewhere around 200 to 250 households. It could power. If you had one of those every day of the year, you could power a couple, couple hundred households every day of the year, something on that order. Your average household uh, statistically is about 30 kilowatt hours a day. Got so it. 30 into a thousand, that's how I'm getting my 250 to 300. I think what uh, also people get confused by is kind of this, this terminology around how batteries are sized. And uh, I know we don't want to go necessarily too deep in the rabbit hole here, but the megawatt, megawatt hour thing, it yeah, seems like so, you could have uh, like a one yeah, megawatt. A, I'll give you, I can give you a great uh, s- simplified, you know, the mm-hmm. way you can almost think about it as water in a tank, you know, a water tank and a pipe. And so the size of the pipe coming out of that tank is your megawatts. Mm-hmm. How much flow can I pull out of that tank if I have the tap fully open? I could, you know, let it run at a trickle or I could let it wide open at wide open. That's my megawatt rating. So yeah. I can have a battery that's uh, one megawatt. Okay. That's the maximum right. diameter of my pipe. I could operate it at half a megawatt just by only opening the tap halfway, but I have a one megawatt pipe and I have a 10 megawatt hour tank, mm-hmm. which means I could run that pipe full throttle for 10 hours before I drain the tank. And that's the way to think about it. Mm-hmm. I hope. <laughs> yeah. It would require a much deeper conversation to help folks understand the difference at the point of interconnection for megawatt and megawatt hour. But well, but, but it'll be the same for any technology, right? So it depends on your application, what you're sizing for. Let's say it's for resiliency purposes, and I want to be able to do part of my energy uh, load shift as a business. I want to be able to reduce my energy costs in the afternoon when the power costs me the most. Mm -hmm. And so I'll figure out what's the optimum size versus cost versus the economics versus the cost of the avoided power. Mm -hmm. I can solve for that and I can optimally size on the power, but I might also have some value see some value in having some additional capacity, some extra, extra gallons of water in my tank. Yeah. That what happens if there is an outage that I didn't plan for? Does an outage impact my business in a negative way? And if that's the case, I might see value in having some reserve because the incremental cost of reserve, at least in the case of our battery, is, is very, very low cost. Once you're already going to build the battery, adding a few extra hours of reserve is is uh, it's just a fraction of the you know the full cost, which is unlike most other batteries. And the reason for that is to add additional capacity. We're just adding more salt, water, and iron, which is very low cost. That's what our uh, our, our electrochemistry of our technology is. Yeah. Well, why don't we take this take a moment here to introduce folks to ESS Inc. as a specific uh, use case? Why is it that what you've created is going to help solve the the long duration storage problem, at least in that, in that Goldilocks chair in the middle, uh, four to 24 hours. And, and what are the other alternatives? I, I, I know more about the technology than uh, the average mm-hmm. listener, I guess. So why don't we just start from the top? Well, so if I were to go like tech, go through the whole list, I mean, <laughs> technically there's over 600 battery technologies that are sort of somewhere on the spectrum today. Most of them all in the lab or research stage. There's a handful that are commercially available, you know, the one that most all of us would be super familiar with as a classic storage technology you already named was hydro. So big dams, long duration storage. You've got lithium ion and a couple of different chemistries there. The type of technology that we uh, developed is a what's called a flow battery. And it's called a flow battery because we push the liquid electrolyte 
through the battery modules. And when it's in the battery module, uh, we're either charging that module or we're discharging that module, depending on the mode of operation. And then the liquid exits the battery and it goes through a tank or some other process as the, depending on the technology. There's other technologies that are out there. People would have seen, they're kind of popular science-y kind of things in, in some regards, but uh, some are getting some more serious attention. You have gravity-based technologies, uh, dropping dropping uh, weights into the ground or compressed air or even pumped uh, storage hydro where you're, you're pumping it down into the ground, back up to the surface and so forth like that. Um, there's, a, there's a range of technologies out there like that. Our particular battery, that flow battery, the liquid that we push through our, the, the circulatory system, if you will, is iron saturated in salt water. And how it actually operates in practice is when we're charging the battery, inside the battery, there's a series, uh, it's basically built like a sandwich. And each layer of the sandwich has a carbon plate. And as the liquid passes past that carbon plate during the charge cycle, what's happening is the iron is coming out of the solution and it's collecting on that carbon plate. And so we're just building up a thickness of pure iron, literally food grade iron. And when we want to discharge the battery, we reverse the polarity. So as fast as you can flick a switch, we're not changing the flows or anything like that. Directions, just the polarity. The iron wants to dissolve back into the salt water. And so we're basically creating iron, creating rust, creating iron, creating rust, creating iron, and reversing that process. And that's the basic lay description of what's going on inside our battery. And and what makes it new and uh, unique to the world is that we've figured out a way to make that process theoretically reversible in an infinite number of cycles. Yeah. Now, it's not truly infinite number of cycles. There is ultimately going to be some endpoint on it, but we've proven it out to over 10,000 10, cycles and no, no loss of performance. So that makes it a very long-lived battery with no loss of power. So the, the same, you know, if you had that in your iPhone today, then... Five years from now, you'd still get a full charge and full use of that battery for a full day, um, which obviously isn't the case in a lithium-ion battery. Yeah. And for folks who perhaps haven't heard of this technology before, just to put it into scale, ESS is in good company when it comes to validation of the technology. Not only has the U.S. Department of Energy invested heavily in the concept of flow batteries, we've got a number of startups from the United States that have both gone public and, and commercialized flow battery technology and notable uh, industry titans like Lockheed Martin. And, uh, and Sumitomo Electric out of Japan mm-hmm. are involved in trying to bring grid-scale flow battery technology to market and have been for a long time. This is by no means a new, a new concept. That's right. And ESS takes it from a different chemistry and a different approach, as Hugh, uh, as Hugh just explained. That's really helpful. Can you put it in context then, then in terms of who is the target customer? Is it a utility? Is it a developer? How do you sure. package this? Uh, again, who do you sell to and what problems you saw for those specific clients? Yeah, so I think I could probably put it in two, three buckets. Starting at the, at, at the large scale, utilities and the companies that sell to utilities, what, what's referred to as independent private power producers, IPPs. Um, utilities in many states now uh, don't, buy, don't build and own their own power plants anymore. They will often contract for third parties to do that, uh, these IPPs. So utilities, IPPs, are for the very large scale, and they're predominantly doing it for uh, grid stability and or to integrate with large-scale renewables. So 
Uh, if you've got lots of renewable coming onto the grid, you're going to need lots of storage to support that. And in certain parts of the world, it's almost the what they call the attachment rate. Like in California now, 95% of all new solar projects have storage attached to them. So it's almost a requirement. And that eventually becomes the case anywhere around the world where as you start really pushing deep penetration of renewables. Yeah. In island environments like Hawaii and Puerto Rico, it's 100%. Yeah. And then when we look at sort of the other segments and customers that we we support, the commercial and industrial customers would be kind of the second bucket. Mm-hmm. So these would be customers that have kind of two needs. One would be uh, they want to reduce their energy cost or they have a an, a, an environmental and social governance mandate that says we're going to actually walk the walk. We're not mm-hmm. going to just greenwash our electrons and pretend we're buying acres in the Amazon to say we had green, right. green energy when we actually bought coal from our state next door. Um, we're actually going to put solar and we're actually to make that work for our operations. We need storage to be able to go through the night. So the ESG and, and reducing energy costs, there'd be a third use case for industrials increasingly, and that would be resiliency. So mm-hmm. being able to keep the lights on when weather events happen is the most common thing that happens. So uh, or God forbid, we start seeing these incidents like you raised earlier about uh, what's going on in North Carolina this past week, which is not the first time that's happened in that's the right. U.S., right? And so yep. let's hope we don't have any uh, viral contagion type of phenomenon going on there. So resiliency is increasingly a thing because what we're all now coming to grips with, uh, you may have been a climate denier in a previous life. You may have been unconvinced that there was real you know, uh, global warming happening. But what is undeniable is the uh, weather events that we're seeing are are more severe, more frequent than, you know, anyone's memory, right? Yeah. And so uh, if those are impacting your ability to do business or impacting the ability to provide services to critical social services like first responders and medical centers and um, even just keeping petrol stations open during a mass evacuation, if you've got a, a, a coming hurricane, being able to keep things powered up, you know, resiliency is becoming a thing. And kind of in the third bucket of customers kind of ties to really that, that second one very closely. So you could say they overlap, but microgrids, what we're mm. starting to see is a phenomenon to partly address the resiliency issue, but also there's some, some other, there's some other benefits associated with this. You're seeing sort of community level setups where they want to have their own energy, they want to have their own uh, storage, um, be able to be interconnected to the grid, have the best of both worlds. But Mm. in a pinch, if we had to isolate from the grid for whatever reason, or the grid isolated from us because of a weather event, wildfire event in California that burns down the power lines, and I no longer have power to my remote community, how do I keep my my citizens uh, safe and, and secure? How do I keep my first responders operational? You know, microgrid applications there are becoming a thing. And those can be both uh, government-owned. Uh, I say not both. They could be government-owned. They could be utility-owned. They could be privately-owned. There's all types of cases are emerging out there, the types of business models, excuse me, for those types of applications. We fit in all of those because of the that longer duration is what really defines the, the battery second, the long life, and that workhorse nature of the battery that it doesn't degrade. So it's a nice fit for us. I think the other distinguishing feature for our technology is that because it's a water-based battery, nobody's worried about it catching fire. Nobody's worried about it to blow up. And it's 
dang easy in most cases to get permitted. It's one of the easiest batteries to get permitted. You're not, you don't have community opposition about a lithium-ion battery, for example, coming in my backyard and God forbid what might happen. You know, it's interesting. We mentioned the case here in North Carolina, but one that folks will certainly recognize and was in the news. And I, I don't know the chemistry or the technology they use, but now FPL, you know, included a 10 megawatt battery storage project in the Babcock Ranch uh, Solar Energy Center, which when the latest hurricane decimated parts of mm. Fort Myers, Florida, everyone was quick to say, but look at this wonderful, and it's great for our industry, but look at this wonderful community that had lost zero energy during a time where the rest of uh, effectively all central Florida and the yeah. coast were out of power for a while. And, it's, and it just underscores the the reality, the present reality, a lot of folks will say, oh, that's nice, microgrids, when is that going to happen? Well, it's already happening. It's not only happening on the islands, but it's happening in places like Florida that they're extreme weather prone and uh, increasingly so. Well, and it doesn't even have to be a, a, a true microgrid per se. It could be just distributed storage. That's right. Yeah. So that, you know, in, in at least in the U.S., most of our distribution grids are interconnected uh, and, and interwoven is probably a better word, where the distribution uh, if, a, if a particular line goes down, most of the customers behind that line, the power can still get to most of them, not all of them, but it could be rerouted through other lines to get to them. Yeah. And so the amount of customers being impacted is minimized that way. And that's a, where, where it makes sense to do that. Most utility distribution networks have, have been laid out that way. Now, the same, taking that same concept, if you had a line down uh, or you have lines that are prone to being impacted by thunderstorms in the summer and things like that, having energy storage located in those areas can further reduce the impacts on customers and the numbers of outages that are, uh, number of customers that are affected by the outage and the duration of that outage. So just what they call distributed energy resource is a common term in our industry. And so putting things like storage closer to the loads, as they say, can help alleviate or minimize those impacts as well. And I think that's probably was the case that you were citing in Florida. Yeah. It's fascinating to kind of kick off the conversation with a relatively deep dive uh, into exactly how this technology is meaningful and why developers and lay people in the industry should care uh, and be paying more attention to, to, to paying attention to more than just what you hear from sort of the PR cycle of lithium ion. A lot of folks will talk, will talk about, and we can go into the, to, to the counterpoint here, but a lot of folks will talk about uh, the rare earth metals and all the, the real dangers that we're exposing our grandchildren and their children to by, uh, by accepting the narrative that lithium ion is the best technology and it's the most easily and fast and rapidly deployable. You weren't always working in the battery storage sector. So let's take a, let's step back to kind of 30,000 feet. And uh, I'd like to learn more about your journey to get to the place where you're effectively running BizDev for a, one of the cutting edge leading companies on grid scale storage. You know, I mentioned earlier on that you in the 90s were working on another type of storage. A question that I have that immediately comes to mind is, did you go to University of Virginia Tech with the idea in mind that you would eventually kind of work in power? Is that a direction that you always thought you would be headed? It was a deductive process. As I shared, uh offline with you know Virginia Tech when I when I was making my college choices uh, I put together my list of top 10 and and I, I wanted to go study for the pure love of study and my and my number one was actually a school of philosophy and and uh, as soon as my parents heard about that 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 got struck from the list I can you know didn't last very long but 
as I had to get more pragmatic about my applications, I, I just, you know, my personal journey was uh, looking at what I was good at and what I really enjoyed. And I was really good in, in, in the, the maths and, and uh, that, that aspects. And I really enjoyed science. And I, I like, well, where do those two things intersect? And engineering was just like, you know, back in your high school days, that's about all I could come up with. So growing up in Virginia, uh, Virginia Tech was a natural and I went there and I didn't know what engineering necessarily I was going to do. But in my freshman year, I had some senior, junior seniors who were who were uh, mentors, advisors to me who were in different engineering disciplines. And through the course of interactions with them, uh, they helped me to uh, realize that mechanical engineering was going to be probably the most fit for who I was, uh, diverse interests, give me the most flexibility because you could go in almost any direction with it. At least that was my logic. And uh, this is in the uh, early 80s. And we were coming out of the first or second oil shock and energy efficiency was kind of top of mind. And what was kind of new and catching my attention uh, at the time was like this concept of smart homes and smart energy. And nobody knew what any of that was, but that was just caught my imagination. So by the time I graduated, I had concentrated all my studies in all the renewable energy courses offered, all the energy efficiency, even post-grad courses I was taking, Yeah, you know, weaseling my way in with professor's permission to these courses that, you know, just, just soaking up everything I could with energy. And coming out of school, all I wanted to do was work in energy. And if I could take it internationally, uh, if I got those two boxes checked, you know, I'd do it for free. It was my, it was my logic at the time. And I... The, kind of almost worked out that way initially, at least. Do you remember any particular moments, uh, like maybe around the dining room table with your, with your family that helped also add sort of add uh, directionality to your career choices? Well, I, the, the humorous ones was, you know, my dad really challenging me like, all right, so you're going to get a philosophy degree and what are you going to do with that? Uh, <laughs> so dad was instrumental in, in uh, keeping you out of uh, academia. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much, which is ironic because that was my dad's, uh, you know, secret, secret wish in his life that hmm. he actually wanted to go in academia and never did it. So it's, I find that kind of ironic. But uh, I think it was always just uh, you know, pursue what you're actually good at and and find what, you know, you you actually enjoy. And, and if you could get, you know, get something uh, where those two intersect, you know, you're probably going to have a, a fun ride. And it wasn't much more complicated than that. It was, you know, there was not like a, a lot of... Uh, super, uh, you got to be a doctor, you got to go in this direction or that. It was, uh, you know, at least in the, the way we were raised, we were, you know, go choose uh, what you what you really enjoy. But, you know, you had a, you had some talents that you were given and uh, you'd be, um, you know, you had a responsibility to sort of take the most advantage of them, uh, mm -hmm. responsibility to yourself. And yeah. uh, if, you, if you wanted to be a little more altruistic, you could say, and, and, and a responsibility to the rest of, uh, you know, you know, the time on earth that that make the most of what you've been given. One of the early moments, uh, Nico was, and this is a true story, was uh, freshman year. I was still having to choose or declare, uh, it was coming up on the time to declare my major. So you go freshman year in engineering school, you're taking just broad-based course. Yeah. Got a knock on my uh, dorm room door. Uh, I had an upperclassman as my roommate and initially told the guys, go away. It, it, it turned out to be two uh, Mormon missionaries, um, college students who were knocking yeah. on doors, just wanted to have a conversation. And uh, I, you know, I said that come come around later when 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 Doug's not here, and uh, they came around later. We we had uh, the start of several conversations. It turned out both of them were aeronautical uh, engineering seniors getting ready to graduate, and uh, we just had conversations about where I thought I might be going, and uh, they were sharing me 
I'll say kind of a little bit of concern, if not even outright regret of their majors. And they hadn't even graduated because wow. you know, they, they realized too late into their program that uh, the only real jobs were going to be either working for the airline industry or the defense industry. The latter didn't kind of square with who they thought they were going to grow up to be. Right. And uh, the former was in the midst of one of the worst recessions in that industry ever. So they were kind of not too excited about that as a career path and shared that with me. I go, huh? Cause I thought aeronautical was like the coolest thing on the earth at the time. Yeah. And so that was a, that was a defining uh, inflection point for me to really think hard and through subsequent conversations with them and, and they were helping just draw me out of me was uh, well, you have diverse interests and they actually uh, helped strongly influence. They were probably the single greatest influence of me choosing mechanical engineering mm. Uh, because it was the most diverse. And when I got into that, uh, you know, the second inflection point was the energy uh, crisis uh, that was kind of imprinted in everybody's minds in, at that time uh, in the U.S. And I, I had a part-time job as a way of paying my way through school. And I was working for an energy startup. And my job was to understand utility tariffs. And I had a, this is really dating myself. I, I was using VisiCalc on a Radio Shack computer, Radio Shack TRS-80. I remember wow. it. it was the pre-IBM computer at the time. It was the it was the bee's knees of uh, of uh, business computers mm-hmm. for a very short lived time, of course. But anyway, I was doing VisiCalc, uh, little sixty four k programs to do rate analysis for peak demand shaving. This is like nineteen eighty one, nineteen eighty two, and so I got my uh, I got my baptism into uh, energy and engineering, and a couple of years later, I graduated. And uh, what's that, uh, Gary Larson? I was, I was a free range chicken, and I never looked back. When you were getting out of school, very much knowing uh, mechanical engineering is the direction you'd been, uh, you'd had this great experience with energy modeling and peak demand shaving as a as a college kid. How did you think about? directionality, like where to take the first step in your career? Uh, so I was aggressively, and remember, this is all pre-internet. So yeah. I was spending my time researching uh, every company I could find through magazines, encyclopedias, uh, industry uh, publications, who's in the energy business uh, mm-hmm. of any kind. I, I wasn't super excited to go straight to a utility that somehow didn't excite me. I didn't see that going to be very innovative or very creative in a way. And I eventually, you know, I had opportunities to go join some offers early coming out of school to go join utilities in the mid-Atlantic area. But I ultimately went for a a small uh, engineering energy consultancy. And my rationale was that, you know, I was going to be challenged every day with a multitude of different assignments that were going to be diverse. And I was going to constantly be stimulated and learn a heck of a lot in a very short time. And that's what really appealed to me. And yeah. they were, as we, as, and I was with them for the first six, seven years of my career. And yeah. we went from a very small company to uh, several hundred people and international. And so um, got the international dimension started to feed into, uh, you know, just another, another uh, vein of, of stimulation, yeah. if you will. Yeah. It's very interesting. In, in a previous call we had, you said that you were looking for three things when you got out of school, energy, Energy, like efficiency, renewable energy, an international job that kind of represented for you adventure and just to make enough to eat. Uh, the international dimension was just, I just had to feed the, the, the sense of adventure. Yeah. Right. And if I could get, do something in energy and it was international, I mean, what else could I ask for? Mm-hmm. I'd get everything that would keep me entertained for the rest of my life. That's kind of, kind of how it's turned out. 
Hey family, one quick reminder here that if you haven't yet joined Resource Labs, you are missing out. It is our outstanding community. It's the evolution of Suncast moving from presentations, you listening to us talk, to conversations. Our community involved in conversations as varied as powering Australia to green hydrogen to crypto and so many other things. Our newsroom is full of great insights. The main chat and even our RE Plus Where to Party At channel have been popping off. We've got more than 100 folks enjoying the community, and I would invite you in. You can do that at mysuncast.com forward slash community. Come see how Resource Labs can help you grow your influence, impact, and income. See you inside. Hey, I know you are a savvy listener. Heck, you're listening to Suncast and You've probably, as a result, heard of a little company called SunGrow. If you're not using SunGrow inverters on your projects, I would love to better understand why. They are the inverter of choice for many of the EPCs that I know. SunGrow is the number one in gigawatts deployed. They've got the top bankability in the industry. Hexsolve uses them for the majority of their projects. And you may not even know, but SunGrow has the largest R&D team in the power electronics industry. These three key points alone have convinced most of the major U.S. developers to prefer SunGrow. They now experience a diversified supply chain, local service team, patented containerized product, all with their seamless pain-free commissioning. Look, imitation is the highest form of flattery. So why spend all of your cycles on what inverter to use when the largest EPC in the land has already done the heavy lifting for you? You can have their same experience for your projects. See how at mysuncast.com forward slash sungrow. So Hugh, you've had a really fascinating career in my view. You've done a lot of, uh, of, of global international uh, business development, multifaceted. And I'm curious if for you, as you look back, you see a through line in the progression of roles that you took on. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question because outside looking in, you like, uh, how did you go from there to there? So <laughs> I think it probably breaks down into sort of three chapters. And, and kind of the first chapter was one I just kind of talked about was where I was in this analyst role and doing lots of different, looking at lots of different technologies and doing technology forecasts and commercialization strategies and what have you. After a while that, to me, that sort of felt like reporting on the news and I got, I wanted to go out and start making the news. And so kind of the middle chapter of my career was working for companies and most of this was international to actually try and go do projects. So large scale energy projects or do the first, uh, in some cases, mapping of resources in parts of the world that hadn't seen solar or wind development to date, things of that nature. So go actually out, go and, and, and make the impacts as opposed to sort of writing about somebody else who might make the impacts. That was kind of the middle chapter. And then uh, the third chapter, and it's the one that I'm in currently, about 15 years ago, I wanted to get closer to the technologies that were going to be making a difference. And that's where I, I kind of became the technophobe that I am today. Uh, not phobe, but uh, the technophile, technophile. Uh, t- today. Uh, and I made the jump to a company um, in 2009 called Better Place. And mm. for those of you who aren't familiar with Better Place, it's a tremendously fascinating story. Uh, it was the idea of electric vehicles. Yeah. Concept came out in 2007 with switchable batteries. And uh, the idea that you drive a vehicle into something that looked like a car wash and the battery 
would be robotically removed from the bottom of the car and a fresh, fully charged battery um, jacked into the car and away you go and you got another two, 300 miles of range. Mm -hmm. They pioneered that concept. And yeah. um, that actually, I, you know, oddly as it may sound, that's where I got my start in energy storage. And it's amazing. Led me to I, I'm fascinated by this. So I actually want to dig into this a little bit more because I remember I started in 2006 and I remember Shai Agassi coming to Silicon Valley and he mm -hmm. was lauded by Silicon Valley and in the news as this bright young entrepreneur and better place was going to revolutionize the way that we charged mm -hmm. electric vehicles and the way that electric vehicles were done. So what was the entry point for you to actually get that role at better place and how did that evolve? Yeah. So the original entry point was, uh, I was headhunted to come in and run better place, North America. Mm. And, uh, it was premised on, uh, the expectation that we were going to get a, uh, DOE loan. There mm -hmm. was, this was circa 2008, 2009, and we had the financial crisis and there was the big stimulus program that some of your listeners may recall. Mm -hmm. And Better Place had teamed up with General Motors and there was a, a, a multi-hundred million dollar loan that was going to catalyze EVs in the U.S. and EV charging infrastructure. And unfortunately, after accepting the offer, uh, the loan didn't come through. And so suddenly, uh, well, what are you going to do, Hugh, was uh, the question. And, and I, I was now already infected with the the fever of the the change that we could bring about with this this concept and EVs. Yeah. And I had been doing my research on the company and and it's and and it's at its heart, it was really an IT company, if you mm -hmm. if you really want to think about operationally how all this had to come together. And it was a steep learning curve for me. But I had done the homework and been thinking about, you know, you've got these cars that are all going to be plugged in in the better place universe. We would gonna we had real time communication to the car. Yeah, we had real time communication to the charging outlet if it was one of our outlets, yeah. and we had real time control over the charge rate at the outlet or on board. And if you thought about those two things, um, we have controllability, we have predictability, and the the third leg of the stool was we would have a direct contract relationship with the driver and owner of that vehicle. Right, and so. If you thought of the vehicle as, I'll use the analogy, like a cell phone, you could get a cell phone plan that would allow for a certain number of miles per month. Yeah. And we would guarantee, we could have it like with rollover miles, we would guarantee levels of service and range and coverage. It sounds kind of like a leasing program for electric vehicles. And this is, a, I mean, for those listening, this is circa 2007. This is, you know, Tesla is barely in its infancy, like barely out of Martin Everhart and, and company's yep. head, um, pre-Elon. And, yeah. uh, we're still like who, who killed the electric car is the most popular sort of EV, uh, zeitgeist, if you will, because GM had famously done that, even though they were going to partner with, uh, with better place. Yeah. So the, the notion I had and how I eventually talked my way into a real job at, at better place was I went to shy and I, I had this idea. I said, look, you have all these connected cars. We have these connected sockets. We, we have all the data. Uh, there is a organic energy storage play here. Yeah. I'm willing since the other, uh, since this you know, original intent didn't fell through through no fault of ours, I'll come on board, give me six months to do a deep dive on this. And, and I'll come back with, uh, you know, presentation to you, the board. And, and if it's got legs, we'll go from there. Yeah. And that was the start of it. And, and the, the whole premise was we would be able to control the rate of charge. Mm -hmm. And if I can control the rate of charge of hundreds or thousands of cars at any moment in time, 
which at scale would be tens, if not hundreds of thousands of cars. Right. It looks like I'm controlling something the size of power plants right. in real time. And to a grid operator, if I'm able to fluctuate my load up or down, it doesn't matter what that device is actually happening. That, That's right. that looks like a battery storage. So yeah. uh, the idea was organic or synthetic battery storage. I just want to make sure I'm clear. So in circa 2008, you all were working on both manufacturing a vehicle uh, and uh, creating a software platform for that vehicle that was a subscription model, effectively way ahead of its time to create this product that you call synthetic battery. Something that most listening right now who maybe have read like Bill Nussie's uh, local energy book uh, would, would recognize as like, wow, this is exactly how people are talking about electricity right now with batteries. Yeah. And that was 15 years ago. And that's really, so I, I had probably... Uh, what I thought at that point in my time, the hot was going to, nothing could ever be a, nothing would ever exceed this moment in my career in terms yeah. of, uh, being on the front edge, the, the, literally the cutting edge of everything. And at the same time, have the total luxury, uh, that shy and better place allowed to just go to become the world's expert in that. Right. I, I'd never aspired to be an expert in anything, yep. to be very candid, mm. but the opportunity to just devote single-minded focus to this one thing, as opposed to some of my previous career stops where, you know, in the consulting world, you were juggling multiple projects at one time and you never right. became a true expert on any one in my, my humble opinion. Right. But here it was, you know, deep dive, really deep thinking. And so the idea of stacked benefits was something that to our knowledge, nobody had come up with, but our modeling was showing, Hey, we can do these different services on the grid. Oh my gosh we could do these different things behind the meter for end customers. And so we had a traffic model. We could convert existing traffic patterns to the energy use patterns at a location specific mapping and uh, aggregate that all up to a region. And here's what your hour by hour energy load would look like. We could do it at nodes. So we built out all these, these models and we could take this anywhere in the world. Then the next phase of that evangelizing, if you will, was to go out and test it in the world. And so I went around the world, literally to four continents, anyone who would listen at the time, primarily targeting grid operators and utilities saying, we've got this model. Here's how EVs actually look like a, a, a phenomenal asset to you yeah. that amazingly you won't even have to pay for, but if you harness them up, could be this zero carbon flexible asset in your grid operating stack. This is fascinating. And so a few who finally, you know, would get it and say, that's very interesting. I'd say, we're willing to open up all of our modeling. You tell us the scenario, we'll develop the energy profiles. We'll feed those into your models. You tell us what it can do for you. And if there's some there, there, we'll, we'll pick up the conversation. And it took about nine months of that kind of effort to get the first few utilities and serious players to invest the modeling time on it. And there was like eureka moments. It was like, holy cow, this is phenomenal. It's a hundred thousand vehicles to put it in perspective. A hundred thousand vehicles is a 350 megawatt power plant. And so a hundred thousand vehicles that you could throttle up or down meaning how fast you charge them. I'm not taking energy out of them yet. Looks like I've, I've got a 350 megawatt gas fired power plant that I can throttle up or down on the grid with zero emissions, with zero emissions. And so Amazing. the kind of the, the trifecta, if you will, for a utility was like, uh, the deal that we, I was out trying to pitch would be you own the infrastructure, 
you be the energy provider of choice where the regs would allow. We'll be the aggregator of these customers who are going to be migratory at all times. But as migratory as they are, they actually have, they, they nest in the same place every night and they nest in the same place most every day. So that's highly predictable. And we can model around the rest. And we have the direct relationship with them, like a cell phone plan that would give us some flexibility around how we deliver their energy, provided we met their minimum needs every day. And if we aggregate all that up, we would give you the energy forecast on a day ahead basis on whatever time increment you want. And we'd give you two, it'd be actually two forecasts. What's the minimum we need for our drivers? And what's the maximum we could absorb or deliver based on the availability of the batteries, the uh, collective uh, load of the batteries. And you, Mr. Utility, tell us where you want us each hour of the day between those two curves. And so you get your cake and you eat it too. And that was the, the, the value prop. I spent a better part of a year trying to figure out how do you monetize all the different pieces of value you create for a utility and realize that, that you really can't. And so we, we had to boil it down to more strategic partnering type of an arrangement as opposed to, all right, if you're doing ancillary service, we'll pay you for this. If it's energy, we'll pay you for that. And if it's a fast frequency response, you know, it just, that was mind-numbingly complex to get to. And then the, the Achilles heel of that is great. We figured that out. Now I got to go through exactly the same exercise at utility number two and utility That's number right. three. And every single, the techno-economic modeling for every single one. Yep. And so a super exciting time, uh, still reflect on it, but that was actually where I got my PhD, if you will. In energy storage. <laughs> on energy storage was- And grid services. <clears throat> and grid services and, and really understanding how grids operate and utilities dispatch power and- uh, network operating centers and dispatch modeling and so forth. That was really uh, the deep dive for me. Is there anything that presently exists for someone who can't sit down and talk with you for two hours, but wants to learn kind of what's already been thought about before? Is there, is there some sort of a resource that you know exists that's like a book or anything that folks could... In what regards? I mean, is there anything that sort of captures the early days of of the well, ideation around this stuff? So uh, we did one, we evangelized, we went to PJM, the big grid operator in the, uh, in the east uh, of the U.S. I think it's right. uh, 11 or 13 states they cover. Mm-hmm. And uh, Terry Boston was the CEO at the time. And we got an audience with Terry Boston. We said, hey, um, we think that EVs could be potentially interesting to you at the transmission level. Yeah. And the immediate response we got was, oh, we've already modeled what a million EVs would look like, up to 10 million EVs would look like on our grid. And we're, all, we're good until up to about 10 million. So, and we don't wow. see 10 million coming anytime soon. So um, we're not sure there's any value to doing anything here. I said, well, you modeled it probably from a physical infrastructure standpoint. Am I correct? And they go, yeah. yeah. I said, did you model it from the market impact? Mm-hmm. And I go, huh, no. And so we said, well, we think that could be interesting. And they agreed. And we said, you set the scenario. Tell us what region, what quantities of cars. We'll go do the homework. We'll get all the DOT data and the transport data. We'll develop the energy models. We'll furnish to you in in any scale, dimension, breakdown you need. And we spent uh, six months. We did the mid-Atlantic, 1 million vehicles at some point in the future. What happens to the PJM market model? And it was, that paper is out there. It's the most surprising paper you'll see, uh, I think, in this space. Um, it's circa 2013. 
PJM. If you probably Google PJM and and uh, my name, Steve Schneider, uh, Robbie Bierman, those are my uh, co-conspirators on the project. And PJM, you, you'll it will show up. But it was a it was a fascinating because it had some really surprising results. We showed that as little as one million vehicles operating in the Mid Atlantic area, which was not an unreasonable you know far off scenario, would add $750 million of annual, what they call social uh, cost to the, to the power pool, meaning the total amount of energy that had to be purchased just got inflated by $750 million annually in PJM's pool. And that's if it was an un, unstructured, people are just plugging in and charging whenever. Then we ran a scenario that said, what if everybody charged at off-peak times and uh, everybody who could would take advantage of the off-peak rates? We modeled that. It had no impact. In fact, it had a slightly higher um, modeled impact. And, and keep in mind, these were not our impacts. These were PJM's impacts. We were just giving them the energy profiles of what would happen on an hour-by-hour basis throughout the year. And that was a head-scratcher. I would love it if someone in the in the audience would find that for us, because I've tried to research and can't find it. I came up with some... Uh, I will send you the link to your uh, readers and uh, offline, uh, Nico. I love it. I love it. Uh, man, there's so, I th- we could go so much deeper. I'm wondering, uh, in a in a nutshell, is there anyone that you think is getting it right now? Like 15 years later, has anyone figured this out? Correct, is not. I, I think people have figured out the possibilities here, and I think there's a there's a a few folks have uh, been trying to connect the dots. Mm-hmm. But I'm the the pieces that are missing, um, and and some of these are are hurdles that uh, are are not easy to overcome. Uh, the interoperability to be able to communicate. So a lot of the charge equipment manufacturers are semi-closed systems. Right. You know, they have an interoperability so one guy can plug into the other, but they try to keep it as a as a keep it in keep you in your in their ATM network, yeah. so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, the automotive industry uh, didn't really understand this in my opinion for the first decade the last decade, but figured there there's got to be value in there somewhere. We just don't understand how to unlock it or how to get to it. So they weren't going to give it away before mm-hmm. they could figure that out. And so there was a, there was a sort of pr- protect uh, what might be potentially very lucrative in the future. But there was also a legitimate concern that, hey, if we open it up, you know, this is a nascent industry. The last thing we need is wildcats out there mm-hmm. uh, who are doing things uh, that they shouldn't be doing or somehow stressing the batteries, batteries uh, having warranty issues or worse, having ex- accidents and class action lawsuits, you know, there was a real legitimate concern there that yeah. you, you could have those kind of issues. So I think the automotive industry seems to be past most of the the, 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 the severe allergic allergies to that. Yeah. But I think the next, the, the real connective tissue that's kind of missing and where I don't, if there's players doing it, I'm not aware of it because I'm not following it, you know, minute to minute like I used to. But if you can imagine the early days of ATM, if you were a user of the Wells Fargo network, cool, you could get your money out free. But if you went to Bank of America, they're going to ding you $3 every time you wanted you to get your money out of an ATM. Yeah. Then let me go back even further. You couldn't go to a Bank of America because you weren't on their network. Mm-hmm. And then there became the interoperability and they would ding you. Uh, and that was okay. What stitched that together was, you know, the Cirrus network behind the scenes. Right. And so it didn't matter whose ATM home network you were on or what bank you're in, you could go to any ATM around the network around the world and there'd be this uh, clearinghouse behind in the EV world. I'm, inve- I'm imagining 
folks who live in Sacramento commute to uh, Davis. They move from Sacramento Municipal Utility is where they charge at night. They plug in in Davis at PG&E's territory, and they would love to just get one bill right. at the end of the day. And somebody would love to be able to aggregate what that and, and manage that charging in a way that could could pool that into CalISO. Right. Right. There's three different actors, four different actors in that in that use case right there. Um, and that that just argues for like a clearinghouse behind the scenes, serious like ATM network where all that information is being cleared and authorized parties uh, with the right permissions are then able to uh, accept your account mm-hmm. for charging purposes, understand the availability of your account for flexible charging so that I could maybe do some peak demand offerings either at the place you're located or I could do it at the grid level. That's the, that's the next domain. That's fascinating. I mean, you and I talked a lot about your, how this idea of the serious, serious network was the, the kernel that stuck with you from, uh, from better place. And it sounds like it's still the missing piece. It's, I mean, it feels to me like that's something that, that the DOE would need to step in and, and help Someone, um, the pieces are out there. I think it just would need, you know, I don't want to say it needs a, an Elon Musk type yeah. person to go after it, but it, it almost needs someone who has enough resource and enough, uh, you know, just real conviction around this and maybe has some strict, you know, some existing strategic interests that has a national play. Cause it's not a state level play. You'd want to do this on a national scale. Let's talk about the next phase, sort of the next block of time in your career, you've referred to me as the PhD in utility ops, understanding the electric sector, what distribution automation is and how to value, how to value and think about that sector of the industry. So let me ask through a a separate, sort of a different question. How did you originally meet ESS's current CEO, Eric Dresselhaus? Yeah, it's good. Good story there, actually. Uh, So Better Place didn't make it to the finish line, unfortunately. And as I looked about for the the next thing to do, you know, and I, I looked at doing my own startup. I had a couple of colleagues from Better Place and we realized we were a little bit early to the market. <clears throat> so Silver Spring was a company I had been following in Silicon Valley, uh, kind of in parallel to Better Place because it seemed like there could be some overlap with what they did. And Silver Spring, for your listeners to know, was developing uh, internet of things, communication technology. And the first real sector that was taking off for them was the utilities. So smart metering, distribution automation, um, smart distribution, so forth. They built the then leading technology for that communication, super robust, super reliable communication technology. And it was kind of like a platform that you could add applications on. And so uh, I had been following them. Uh, I saw that they were looking to expand in Asia. I'd spent a good part of my middle chapter of my career living, working in Asia and I reached out, dropped a note to Eric, didn't know him and said, hey, I see you're trying to expand into Asia. Been, I know a lot about that market, spent a lot of my time there. Be, I see what you're trying to do. I'm not sure it's the right approach. I'd be happy to have a conversation. And that's how we first connected. And uh, I went to go work for Silver Spring um, a few months later to head up their Asia operations. Wow. And I left Silver Spring in the end of uh, seven, uh, 16, early 17. And uh, I came to ESS later in 17 and uh, Eric and I stayed in touch. And about two years ago, when it was uh, evident we were going to be looking for a, a CEO for the next stage of our growth and, and as a company, I gave uh, Eric a ring and uh, he had to win the position. I wasn't hiring him. It was the board. But uh, 
that's how we 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 first met was at, at Silver Spring. Yeah, that's fascinating. If we could spend a whole, as we did with Better Place, we could probably spend a whole 30 minutes on, on Silver Spring. You know, it ultimately got acquired by itron and precipitated your decision to to move on which ultimately led to ess and i want to highlight that you didn't find ess the way that better place found you so i love i love that the sort of last two jobs is are really because you were very proactive about how you wanted to characterize the growth of your career so explain a little bit about the transition from silver spring into battery storage well, at the end of uh, my my run at Silver Spring, uh, I was starting to see battery storage was kind of becoming mainstream. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, let, I, I really want to revisit that because I never lost the fever from my better place days. And <laughs> so I was looking in two, two dimensions, stationary storage, and I was also staying close or returning to some of my uh, network in the EV space and yeah. really exploring both. And so there were some players that were in the EV space, smart charging, several I talked to. Um, I was also looking at the stationary storage and some of the newer technologies. And what I discovered uh, was right in my own backyard, I I live in Southern Oregon, uh, was this company called ESS. And they were still kind of in the R&D stage, pilot-y, prototype that stage. And uh, I did some research on them. I traveled to DC and met with DOE folks who uh, were part of the program. I mean, I did firsthand love it. reviews before I ever reached out to ESS. Yeah. I uh, did my uh, homework on them. And, and then uh, I, I got a, an opportunity to get connected to Craig, uh, one of the co-founders here and uh, got that intro, drove up, um, had a first meeting that was supposed to be a 30 minute meeting and went five hours and uh, the rest is history. Joined uh, ESS. I, I was, you know, what 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 caught my imagination here uh, for ESS was it was not lithium. Uh, lithium yeah. to me was going to be. I, I just didn't see where the the innovation was going to be or the excitement was going to be being kind of in that technophile kind of mindset. Uh, where it was going to be to me, it was going to be kind of pedestrian. Um, yeah. And so, what were the other sort of on the cusp players or technologies? Uh, that were out there. And ESS, mm-hmm. by my due diligence, uh, was was right up there at the top of the list. And it, and it kind of what tipped it over was right in my own backyard. So it wasn't like I had to move cross country or anything like that. Yeah. So then you cold outreach to these guys, just, just still the founders and some 20 or so folks at the time. And they were getting ready to close a round of funding, right? Yeah. It was, um, uh, st- you know, that we had just, we had just moved into uh, a 50,000 square foot empty uh, facility here in Wilsonville. Um, we had folding tables and uh, chairs and it was, I, I want to say it was about 25 people of us. And we were just like in one cavernous space, <laughs> all, uh, you know, rolled up sleeves. Um, Craig sitting a, a few tables over and, and uh, we're all just trying to get at it. And, you know, it's been a uh, exciting, amazing journey uh, from, from day one. I, I reflect back and I, I say this even today to my, my team and anyone else who cares to listen to me, you know, I, I can look back and say, those are the good old days, but I say even every day right now are the good old days, mm-hmm. right? Cause we're, we're at the forefront of something that uh, is going to make an impact. And, and as part of a broader movement, that's going to change the course of humanity in this century. I mean, I can say that with absolute humility and no, you know, not trying to, overstate what we're doing or be dramatic about it. But 
it's humanity's biggest challenge is decarbonizing and getting this renewable equation. And we're one of the vanguards in, in that in that journey. And so if there's if, the, if, if that can't get you motivated enough and help you see past all the bumps and bruises and the potholes we're falling into every day, which is part of the, the journey of innovation, um, you probably, you know, probably aren't in the right business and, and you never were suited for being being in innovation and, and new technology. Mm-hmm. But it's tough. Every single day is tough. But yeah. if you didn't have that sort of perspective that you're actually uh, it's tough for a reason and it's tough for a cause. Um, and if it was easy, it already had been done. Well, I love that you were the first hire after the Series B. Yeah. I'm curious when you reflect back, what was the number one concern for investors at that stage? You got hired on as the first guy to try to solve this problem. Yeah. So it's typical of every startup uh, at that stage. We had just closed our Series B and you're right. I was uh, the first first outside hire or officer level hire. Uh, everyone up to that point, uh, all the hires had been sort of researchers and engineers and mm-hmm. technicians and so forth. And so the board's number one concern at that time, you know, typically you worry about, you know, does the science work? Does do you have a product yet? When are you going to have that? You know, so forth. The number one concern was, Okay, so you got this thing and it's kind of this long duration battery. Nobody knows what long duration even is. It wasn't part of the vocabulary. You got this mousetrap. Is anyone going to buy the dang thing? And so uh, I said, you know, I think so. You know, I wouldn't be here if I didn't believe it. And yeah. and I made kind of a, at the time, I thought it was kind of a, no, I, I, it was kind of a, a personal challenge, but kind of came off as maybe a, a, a jocular challenge to the organization. Yeah. And I'm I'm going to go out and I'm, I'm going to sell 20 of these systems uh, in the first year. And it was, uh, the, the actual experience was we sold 20 in the first six months. And, yeah. and then it was like, Holy cow, we're not ready to build 20 yet. Right. We thought you were just, you know, usual marketing bravado. And I said, no, we got 20, 20 units. You know, I got customers signed paper, you know, we'd have to deliver them tomorrow. They all know they're, they're all early adopters and they know they're going to have to wait for them, but we got them. And they go like, all right, take your foot off the gas a little bit. Let the, let the product team catch up was kind of the, the sentiment at that time. As we sort of fast forward about probably about 18 months ago, maybe two years ago, long duration started to become a term yeah. and a year certainly a year ago, it became a mainstream thing as people mm-hmm. around the world started to realize, you know, to achieve decarbonization goals, as we talked earlier in the session here, uh, you, you can't get there without, long duration being part of the solution. That's right. And not uncoincidentally, it took a long time, 15, 20 years and many, uh, many grants and support from Department of Energy and others around the world to prove that flow batteries are in fact a core technological advantage for long duration, where maybe other chemistries serve uh, their purpose for for, uh, shorter duration. When you look back over your career, were there any specific occasions along the way that you woke up and just absolutely knew in the morning you were on a mission, uh, what you were on a mission to do uh, from a business or a job standpoint? So I'd say most of my career, I, I, I would like to believe I, I woke up every day knowing that, but I'd say the high watermark for that was the intensity of that 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 culture was probably a better place. Yeah. I mean, we, every single person had was 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 running at 120% every minute of every day because the, the just the level of enthusiasm the absolute clarity of mission uh we had was th- there was not one iota of uh distraction or uh, anyone not believing we were on a mission to change the world 
And that was a, it was a, a feverish kind of thing. I've never experienced yeah. it uh, to that degree. And every one of my colleagues and alumni, we all reflect back with, with similar kind of sentiments. So we all stay close. Um, yeah. The alumni network is still very strong. We get together regularly and it was a high watermark in terms of that kind of cultural zeal and mission driven um, kind of organization, you know, all attributed really to, to, to shy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, once you, you know, it's a kind of, you create your own gravity and you start attracting other people like that. And when you have that kind of gravitational pull, you can be highly selective of the people you want to bring in both for uh, intellect and their just raw brainiac horsepower, as well as the, the, the personality traits that they're going to bring. And that's what we were doing. It was a highly selective, highly, highly competitive environment to get into. We were getting five to 10,000 CVs every month. And it was you know, from top academies and schools and graduate schools around the world. And so it was super selective to get in there. And I, I kind of talked my way into it because, you know, they, there was no role. <laughs> it was, <laughs> I was kind of a flyer and I uh, created a position. So I was, I was super fortunate, but I can honestly say if I had a, tried to apply to any of those positions, I wouldn't even have made the cut. All right. It was that competitive, but it created such an environment there, mission-driven uh, zeal. Fascinating. Very recently, there have been specific milestones uh, affecting the overarching sort of tailwinds and culture of how folks are thinking about energy, integrating storage, renewable energy as an alternative to fossil fuel and the acceleration of the energy transition. Could you talk a bit about your view from the captain's chair of sort of managing BizDev for a major long duration storage company on things that are that developers should be thinking about with regards to the passage of the IRA and impacts mm-hmm. from you know, the war in Ukraine? Yeah, I'll tell you the the topic that's not getting talked about enough, in fact, mm-hmm. in this in this whole realm. And IRA was kind of uh, we already had the global push for renewables and decarbonization, IRA just kind of poured jet fuel on the, on the mm-hmm. fire, if you will. But we have a, we have similar jet fuel being poured on the fire to you. Maybe it's a bad analogy, but we have similar kind of um, push in Europe for different reasons. It's the energy security reasons, yeah. but we have just a, a tremendous amount of financial support pouring into the sector. Uh, and the demand is accelerating like before our eyes. The, the, the topic that's not getting enough attention, and, and uh, this is kind of our evangelizing uh, to developers and utilities now, is strategic long-term supply. Mm. The demand, no matter what part of the spectrum you're supplying in the renewable and energy storage continuum, the demand for that product, uh, for those solutions, is is several times greater than we're going to be able to supply probably through the rest of this decade and well into the next. Mm. And so if you're not, if you're, if you're trying to follow sort of the traditional uh, pathways of I'll buy it when I need it. And, uh, and then I'll get it delivered 18 months later. Uh, everybody now knows that's not working for lithium ion batteries. It's now abundantly apparent that it's not going to be working for inverters. Uh, you need to now be lining up getting in line and with manufacturers of your preferred components and securing part of your future supply five, seven years out now. Um, the lead times for the manufacturers just to scale up is two, three years if they're going to be doing any significant scale up for increased demand. 
So it's not that we're not already doing it. It's just the demand is many times greater than even going at our fastest pace. So that's a real, that's a real a challenge. And so I was in Australia, uh, October for all Australia energy week mm-hmm. and conversations with different stakeholders there, including representatives of different governments, both federal and state was around sharing with them what's going on in with the U S but also what's right. going on in, in Europe. And you've got some massive goals here, but you don't have indigenous industry to serve most of those products. And like it or not, you're now in a race to procure those. And you're, you've got to really think hard about your strategy to ensure your industries and things that are vital to your economy are going to get their fair share of the supply of those. It's going to take you years to localize some, if any of that. And so you're in this global competition much more than, uh, than you ever thought before. And, and that really resonated strongly with them because when they you started connecting dots, you, you, they could see, yeah. So that's probably the, the single biggest topic right now that I see in the, in, in the industry single, you know, least talked about some of the larger players are, are recognizing it, but um, it, it's going to be a challenge. Lithium, anyone who's counting on lithium ion knows it firsthand because um, all the deals they did in 21, 20 and 21, you know, yeah. there's, you know, prices have gone up. Delivery schedules are all blown to heck. And, and do you think uh, that that's across the board or just, um, or specifically or more heightened in the battery industry? Like is the battery industry. It, it, it's solar, it's inverters, it's across the board. Yeah. Right? Okay. And then if you want to be, if you're trying to optimize around that, think if you're t- to your opening question on the IRA, you want to go for the investment tax credits where you can get the most credit. And so yeah. domestic content, you got to have at least 40% domestic content. Uh, or 40 or 45%, depending on which year you're talking about in the next couple of years, to qualify for that ITC. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's not many solar manufacturers that are based in the US, right? There's not many lithium ion battery manufacturing plants in the US. Right. And so uh, you could, you even if you could alleviate some of the supply and some of the pricing, you're going to be disadvantaged if you didn't have, if you weren't also thinking about the ITC benefits, your economic, you know, right. business cases might not pencil out. Your competitiveness in in competitive procurements um, is going to be uh, dramatically impacted. And so, strategic sourcing for U.S. supplied components is kind of the underheralded topic of the moment, in, in my view. I completely concur with you, Q. Based on the evidence from conversations I'm having, and arguably, you know, folks like myself and you who are in conversations with people making these kinds of decisions on a day-to-day basis have, have primary research, have alpha that others don't have. So hopefully folks will listen clearly and carefully and hopefully this far into the interview to realize that uh, this is a major impediment to scalability of a business if you are relying on, and we all are relying on, inputs from major battery inverter module and racking component providers. And I think that folks don't really know where to start. They don't really know what to do next. You've got folks as a result, dipping up in the marketplace, uh, who've been around for a while. You know, Borrego mm-hmm. just spun out a business Anza to help address this. And there are a number of others who are saying, look, procurement's going to be a problem. We got to help folks address it. Uh, I appreciate you bringing that to the, to the light. I wonder as we sort of head towards the home stretch here in the interview, when you think back, uh, on your career and the folks that made a big impact on how you think about work and how you think about being 
uh, an executive uh, or being out on the front mm-hmm. lines. Um, you know, even the idea that you went to DOE, I presume that at some point that was something you modeled that you that you noticed somebody else doing and you were able to sort of reflect on and say, oh, well, this is a good idea. Let me go get uh, information that helps to, to serve uh, my decision-making process. But are there any particular moments, takeaways, salient lessons from early mentors and leaders in your career that had a profound impact on you that you pass along now for others in your on your team or who approach you? Uh, yeah, yeah, probably a couple. I mean, if 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 this kind of thing, you know, being kind of making the news as I characterized it earlier on, mm-hmm. being on the, kind of the cutting edge or leading edge of of uh, innovation in whatever space, energy could be medicine. Um, if that kind of thing is uh, is of interest to you. And you're looking for the, you know, where's a home, where's an environment that that's, that that is going to feed that that interest and that professional desire, and and be rewarding both, I'll say, psychically, uh, career-wise, financially. You know, I, I'd say you want to obviously do your homework. It's it's easy, relatively speaking, to find the companies that be willing to hire you, but be selective about the ones that you're willing to work for. You know, many jobs I've turned down over the years could have, uh, you know, in hindsight, could have probably been much more rewarding financially earlier on. But if I took, you know, heart of hearts, am I going to be happy there? I might be happy for the first six months while I'm in the honeymoon, but am I really going to be happy and and trust, uh, you know, so do homework, uh, really be reflective about, you know, what what kind of gets you out of bed in the morning and what's going to be happy because every job has its ups and downs and what's going to carry you through those, uh, those challenging spots. And, and are the people that you're going to be around, are they going to be, you know, can you have your fights and then still hug it out and, and be productive the next, you know, the next moment. Those are the kind of things that when I'm doing my recruitments and interviewing people, uh, I assume you already have the competency before you've even gotten to my desk. So I don't Mm even, I'm not even quizzing for, for that. I'm, I'm really, it's around personality fit because it will get tough. And, uh, I, I want to know that you're going to be able to take the stress and, and I want to know that we're going to, we're going to be, uh, professional at all times. And I want to know that, that we can also be, uh, uh, I'll say friends. I'm not expecting we're going to get friendships, but mm-hmm. you know, we can stay friends through the whole process. The other thing I would say is this industry has, uh, our industry at least has long memory. You get to carry your own you know, your integrity in a business like the utility business where, you know, we're not paid to go be wildcats. We're paid to keep the lights on. We're, we're, we're paid to support society and, and the lifestyle that we all currently enjoy. So not right. typically known as big risk takers. So your credibility, your integrity, how you conduct yourself is about the one thing that you should most jealously guard. You know, I'd say that in, in any industry. Um, if and the longer you stay in the industry, the the smaller the crowd becomes. You know everybody. Everybody mm-hmm. eventually knows everybody else. And you know if you're a good guy, it will just it, the karma. Just you don't know when, but it it just pays. That's been you know my experience, and it's advice I give uh, regularly. You know, I believe that readers are leaders, and leaders are readers. I'm curious: is there any uh, book or maybe series of books that have most shaped how you think about business or leadership? Two. And because uh, I probably bought like 30 or 40 of each and given them out earlier in my career. One was what okay. color is parachute. Uh-huh. And uh, it, it's it, it, it I think it was probably written in the 70s. And it's one of those sort of self-discovery about what your personality traits are and mm-hmm. a bunch of drills. And I, that was actually given to me by my dad uh, when I was, I think, in high school or college. And 
at that time I was resisting it. Like, dad, you don't know, go, go away. You know, but eventually I read it and, uh, and I, you know, that one I think was a good one. Um, the second one, and, 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 and it's going to sound funny is like, who moved my cheese? Right. Oh, yeah. Um, it's a, you know, a five minute read, yeah. but if you don't get that book, uh, you're, you know, at least in kind of the, the journey I've been on and being in, uh, different startups and always kind of in environments that changes what I signed up for. Um, you know, uh, who moved your cheese was kind of the, you know, the mantra of, uh, this is how you get through it. And I've read most of the other sort of, uh, airport books, you know, uh, seven habits and, uh, you know, all, all the down the list, but the, the ones, if I were to honestly say that I, you know, top of mind, I, I could give to anybody in any, at any level, at any age, those would be the two. That's exactly, that's exactly what I'm looking for. I appreciate that. Do you have any particular habit or consistent practice that in your life has yielded the greatest impact for you? My first hour of every day I spend reading. I'm, I'm pretty religious about that. I wake up, I, I, I have a cup of coffee. I get up. If I have to get up an hour before the rest of the household, I just get, I get up and, and I, I do all my reading. So yeah. How do you structure that reading? I start with all the, the headlines and just global news. I, I read four newspapers every morning. Uh, then I go to my industry uh, news. And then uh, if I still have time in that hour, I'll, I'll skip. Then I'll, then I'll actually start my work. Mm-hmm. The, the news is just to, you know, stay informed. Yeah. Um, both uh, just generally and as uh, in the business world and then also in the industry. And then, then I'll start diving into, uh, you know, what's my, what's my to-do list of the day and get structured. But I, that quiet time, you know, for me, it's between five and 6 a.m. typically. And that's a, I get a lot done in that hour. Yeah. Early bird. And is there any particular place that you go to find industry news that you've found is like a really solid resource for folks that maybe are just starting out? A bunch of them. I mean, uh, energy, storage, energy storage news, utility data. It just, there's a, a, a handful of websites I just click through. They just, I've got them bookmarked. And so when I open up my browser, like eight tabs pop up like that. And yeah. uh, then I can just quickly glance at the headlines. Got it. Well, we'll link to energy storage news at least. And if you, if it occurs to you, you think about it tomorrow morning while you're reading, you can send me over the list of bookmarks. Okay. I think that'd be a fun thing if we did for, for uh, listeners, like, you know, the list of bookmarks that the executives have pat, pat, pinned in their uh, browser for reading. <laughs> there you go. Well, Hugh, it's been amazing having this conversation with you. I've learned a ton. I know that others listening are going to want to connect. How do you like to be found? How can folks best engage with you? Um, reach out directly. Uh, I think my contact information is on our website. Um, feel free to post it. Uh, and what's the website? Uh, com. Fantastic. com. And are you active on LinkedIn? Is that also a place that folks can Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, very active on LinkedIn. So Hugh McDermott, um, yep. ESS on yep. LinkedIn. And we'll absolutely link to, to those credentials in, uh, on the website and the show notes of this, of this episode for those who uh, are out running or washing dishes and your hands are too wet to pause the phone right now, <laughs> as is often the case for me. Hugh, let's end today with what we call a bold prediction. Uh, what do you believe is the linchpin problem that we've got to solve? And in fact, we will solve to decarbonize our grid by 2050. What's holding us back? What's in your crystal ball? What's the linchpin? Well, you can't... Uh- it's going to sound self-serving, but you you can't get there without energy storage of some mm-hmm. way, shape, or form. And so, if there is a linchpin, I would argue that that is it. You, we yeah. can build 
and have all kinds of generating technologies that can be carbon free, uh, but we can't go through the night without energy storage. So to me, that's the the key linchpin to getting there. Um, you know, and 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 I'm speaking only about the power sector. If you wanted to broaden it, because we talked about the EV sector, you know, the electrification of transportation it would be uh, making sure we can we can actually achieve those goals in terms of supply support for not only the passenger vehicle but uh, the trucking trucking fleets. Fantastic energy storage in its various components at grid scale and at uh, at fleet scale is what we need to be able to get through the night, as it were. And, and, our, and the scale of the challenge before us is such that we need kind of all the technologies that are out there to be yeah. successful. It's not just the few that we're talking about. There's, uh, there's such a huge challenge uh, at, on, a, on a global level that, that no handful of suppliers are ever going to be able to remotely get us there. So we, we kind of almost need everybody to be uh, successful in some degree or another. Hugh McDermott is the Senior Vice President of Sales and Business Development for Energy Storage Systems, Inc., better known as ESS. Hugh, it's been fascinating to get to know you. Thanks to your team, Morgan, and the rest who helped make this possible. I'm really grateful that we finally get a chance to chat one-to-one, and I hope that others have learned as much as I have in the last hour plus. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I, I personally enjoyed it, and I welcome your uh, readers to reach out and be happy to continue the conversations wherever they may take us. My, my, I am so full and and grateful for such a wonderful conversation with an entrepreneur and an entrepreneur that I deeply admire, someone that has been very meticulous and thoughtful and specific about the moves that he has made in his career. And those moves have made a material difference in not only our industry, but other industries. I mean, the guy was on the cutting edge of electric vehicles with Better Place. What a fantastic story, by the way. And what an interesting way for he and Eric Dresselhaus to come back together now under the ESS banner. Hugh, I learned so much from you today. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you, listener, for your time and attention. Two things that we must earn and that we cannot ever give back. So I am in your debt. I am grateful that you have stayed all the way through the ending. And if you're eager to keep learning, well, you, my fellow Philomath, can find the resources and highlights from this and every other discussion we've ever had on Suncast, along with the social media links, the book recommendations, blog posts, and everything else that Q and I find interesting over on our blog at mysuncast.com. Click on the episodes section, and that'll take you to this episode. It should be at the top. If you're listening to this sometime in the future, little trick is you can scroll all the way to the bottom of the website, and you'll find the search button on the homepage. Type in Hugh, and it should take you to it. Or you could just simply do like I do when I want to find the episode. Go to Mr. Google, type in Hugh McDermott ESS Suncast, and I would be very surprised if it's not the first result. By the way, since you're going to be hopping online, I'd love it if you would help us reach other folks. You can do that in two very simple ways. One, you can share this episode with others on LinkedIn by both commenting on the post that I've made as well as sharing the post that I've made, reposting it over on your own LinkedIn profile. The other is simple, yet most folks 
don't realize the benefit that it has profoundly is leaving a rating and review. So here at the beginning of the year, I'd love to ask once again, if you would go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast, leave a simple five-star raving rating and review. It truly does help others like you find this content and go deep with us. Speaking of going deep next week, we're going to have someone on who actually goes deep, Mr. Marcus Matthews. We're going to listen to how his deep sea adventures led to his renewable energy career. It is one not to miss. Thanks again to our sponsors who help make this content free to you. I'm indebted and grateful to those who help support the show. You can learn more about those sponsors and their offers, as well as how you could become one yourself and help the Suncast tribe reach thousands of solar warriors and clean energy champions twice a week. Go to mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. Lastly, if you haven't joined us on one of our office hours or jumped into our Discord, I would encourage you to go check out mysuncast.com forward slash community. What I consider to be the culmination of seven years of work connecting the dots for each and every one of you. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.